Let us pray. We give you the glory and you the honor. For you alone are worthy. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Reorient us on this orientation Sunday. Amen. Eclipsing identities. In the past couple of weeks, we've experienced the intermingling of imminence and transcendence, the earthly and the heavenly. Just a few things have been happening in our world, our nation, community, right here on campus at the Duke Chapel entrance. There have been rallies and racism and ridiculous violence and name-calling. There have been debates and protests over Confederate monuments and statues, torches and tempers flaring, op-eds and perpetual opining in the media, calls for justice and jail time over the internet and on the streets, police and other people intense tear gas encounters. Just a few things have been happening on the earth, and these are imminent concerns. But just when you thought the prominence of imminence would prevail, this past Monday arrived and all eyes and minds were drawn upward to the heavens as if someone pushed a pause button on the existential and national pain. People drove far distances to get a perfect glimpse of the solar eclipse. Work days were interrupted to see it. Sunglasses were purchased and checked for authenticity to ensure safety. The chapel staff wasn't even immune to the craze, and we went to what I call the upper room, to the top of the chapel tower, to watch it. And from that tower, I could see other members of the Duke community spread across the quad, stretched out, standing, some lying down, together in groups, all looking up at the eclipse. In that moment, all attention was above the seemingly mundane, above the messiness of our human existence. All were looking toward the light. It didn't matter if you were from rural North Carolina or urban city centers or Appalachia or Arizona or Athens, Georgia. It was the one miraculous moment that a Tar Heel could sit next to a blue devil and not talk trash and tell lies about how they were going to beat us in football this season. But all in that moment were drawn to the light above. Regardless of the previous week's events, Democrat and Republican, Southerner and Northerner, Black and White, Latino, Asian, Presbyterian and Pentecostal, and all of the variety of Baptists, we all looked higher, beyond ourselves, beyond our plight to the light that would show us our real selves. That is how small we actually are in the universe. 
that we are dust, and to dust we shall return, that there is more out there than arguments about statues and statutes. There is mystery, there is glory, there is awe, there is light. There's more to this universe than we can ever imagine. The Breton Fisherman's Prayer, which President John F. Kennedy kept on his desk in the Oval Office is so relevant. Dear God, be good to me. The sea is so wide and my boat is so small. We are so small and the universe is so big. The solar eclipse was transcendent even while we may have been dealing with imminent societal concerns. The event of the eclipse eclipsed for many, whatever else might have been going on at that moment, meetings, work deadlines, urgent emails, or phone calls. Something beyond, something bigger was calling us beyond ourselves. And we turned our attention to it with sunglasses and iPhone cameras and other kinds of cameras, and many did so in community. We looked away from ourselves and the commonplace to an awesome sacred space, reminding us of a higher calling. Something higher broke through our socio-political entrenchments and self-importance. And something, someone higher wants to break through this morning. Jesus wants to break through all of the jangling echoes of our turbulence to ask us a question. Who do you say that I am? He wants our attention because the media isn't giving it to him. So we better do it at church in more than 140 characters. When Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? He's calling for our attention to look beyond ourselves to his light. He's calling us back to the center of our faith. In a recent Christian century essay, Craig Barnes, who's the president of Princeton Seminary, wrote about a controversy there. And he noted that this, he says, this seminary community is, is centered in Christ. We all belong to him. And if we're clear about that, we don't have to worry, he says, about the boundaries because the center will always hold. The center is Jesus, who he is and what he does. But I don't hear any of that really breaking through the cacophony of hateful refrains. Jesus can barely get a word or question in amid all of our talking heads. It may be a good time to take the advice of some of our past teachers who taught us that it is better to appear stupid than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Jesus is the center. And from the very focus at the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew where his genealogy is laid out in detail, A was the father of B, B was the father of C, C was the father of D, and Jesus was born who was the Messiah. Who do you say that I am? He poses the question to his closest confidants because he knows that sometimes those closest to us may not truly know us either. 
when Peter pipes up on behalf of the disciples as a whole, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. It's as if Jesus pours out a rock steady blessing on him. Peter is blessed for putting the focus on the identity of Jesus as the Messiah. And now at this time of year, I realize there are many other things on our mind as we kick off a new academic year and begin to get back into our normal routines. Here we are at dear old Duke. And last Monday seems so very far away as classes are about to get started here at this university. So for students in particular, other things are about to eclipse the eclipse. A lot of focus, especially for first year students, has been on the quotidian, signing up for classes, getting Duke IDs, opening up bank accounts, meeting with faculty advisors, discovering where new classes are located, following bus schedules, getting used to campus food, and I highly recommend Tandoor Indian food at the West Union, getting used to dorm life, learning about your roommate and that your roommate snores and has peculiar cleaning habits, finding your way around campus and dorm, and then of course meeting new people and making new friends, getting to know each other even at a free lunch after this service. There's lots of questions coming your way about your identity, about who you are, what is your hometown, what high school did you attend, what are your academic interests? Do you play sports? Are you involved in any clubs or interested in any clubs? What do you like to read? Do you have any hobbies? Why did you choose Duke? What other schools were options for you? Do you have any siblings? Are you a carnivore, a vegetarian, a vegan, a seafood diet kind of person? You see food and you eat it? There's a lot of focus at this point of the year in particular on you. And there are many affinity groups. Let's not forget these affinity groups and you'll identify with some of them as a part of who you are. But remember that although we may identify with particular groups and they will function as identity markers, as humans, we are always more complex and beautiful than any one totalizing category. Golf player Tiger Woods calls himself Clablanasian, representing his mixed ethnic heritage of Caucasian, Black, American, Indian, and Asian. And, and some weren't happy about Tiger's name for his identity many years ago when he said that. But he was trying to make a point. When it comes to identity politics, our categories will always fall short. Progressive, conservative, liberal, evangelical, mainline, whatever our affinity, I hope it doesn't distance our proximity to our humanity. We are human, not an identity marker. So when a society or institution is so fixated on identities, it can create an objectified group to be stereotyped and controlled, those people. This is why when it comes to denominational identity, I sometimes will say that I'm a reformed Methobapticostal. Now some may say, well, you're just confused being powery, but I use it to make a point to say, yeah, I'm Christian. 
Regardless of my particular denominational identities, I refuse to be pigeonholed in a corner when I know that I embody so much more than one descriptor or one identity, nor do I want to be barricaded inside any identity for self-protection or self-worth. We can get so locked into who we are that we forget whose we are. There's a story about a middle-aged woman who had a heart attack and she was taken to the hospital. And while on the operating table, she had a near death experience. And during that particular experience, she says that she saw God and asked if this was it. And God said no and explained that she had another 30 to 40 years to live. So upon her recovery, she decided to stay in the hospital and have a, a facelift, liposuction, breast augmentation, and a tummy tuck. She even had some, someone come and, and change her hair color. <laughs> she figured that since she had another 30 or 40 years, she might as well make the most of it. But unfortunately, as she walked out of the hospital after her last operation, she was hit and killed by an ambulance speeding up to the hospital. She arrived in front of God again and asked, I thought you said I had another 30 to 40 years. And God replied, sorry, I didn't recognize you. <laughs> we can get so lost in ourselves, perhaps even lose ourselves so much that we become unrecognizable even to ourselves in the process of self-consumption. And in that process, we forget Jesus and his question that calls us back to him this morning. Who do you say that I am? Remember me? The disciple Peter gets chastised for not setting his mind on divine things, but only on human things. And I think sometimes this is the case with us so consumed with our identities, our debates, our political affiliations, our groups, our rightness, we neglect the one who can save us, who is right in front of us in Caesarea Philippi, North Carolina. If we are more interested in pledging allegiance to the nation and our bloodline, our basketball team, our alma mater than to the cross of Christ, we will easily go down the path toward the supremacy of our people, our land, our nation, our tribe, our team, bowing at the altar of our own identities rather than at the wounded feet of Jesus. If we think life is rooted in our lives, we've lost our way because there is a theological eclipse. Who do you say that I am? Who the Son of God is eclipses who we are. Life is discovered by losing your life, not by holding on to it so tightly. And this becomes so clear when you know who Jesus is. If you know who he is, you can understand more fully where you are headed if you choose to follow. If you don't, you may think that who you are trumps Jesus rather than finding yourself in him, losing your life to gain your life. This isn't about the erasure of your identity or particularities, but the reception of an authentic self 
found in him. After Peter answers the question of Jesus, Jesus tells them, orders them not to tell anyone that he's the Messiah. He orders the disciples not to tell anyone, and he's dead serious because he knows that he will suffer death for it. And right after he speaks to Peter, from that time on, Matthew tells us, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, he raised, be raised. He's not just a miracle making Messiah. He's a messy one because his innocent blood will be spilled. But Jesus keeps his secret close because not everyone can be trusted with your identity. He knows that some will taunt you and kill you for who you really are. Self-revelation is a risky business, especially for Jesus. Jesus was about to be persecuted for who he was. He wasn't safe around everyone. But that's not surprising either because following Jesus is anything but safe. It will save you. But it also means following a Messiah who dies which leads to your own death. I realize this is a, a great topic as you begin studying at Duke this year, anticipating all of the upcoming work, prepare to die. I mean, who you say Jesus is says something about who you are and who you are willing to be and what you're willing to risk as a follower of Jesus. Being a Christian doesn't mean you kill because at the heart of Christianity, it's nonviolence, but it does mean you will die. You will experience hardships and suffering, yet you will receive a power to endure, the power to die. You won't be the one with the power, but you will receive power from Christ, such strength that even the gates of Hades, the power of death, will not eventually prevail. In him, in fact, you will also be raised. You will rise to be a witness for Christ. Jesus told his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So their witness to this open secret was not necessarily with words. Even as a preacher, I agree with poet Edgar Guest, who writes, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. The lives of the disciples of Jesus, as a bib one biblical scholar notes, will speak louder, more truthfully, more effectively than their words. By the life they live, a life of love for God, a, a life that loves the other as much as one loves him or herself, a life in pursuit of, of justice and peace, we show who he is by who we are and by what we do. Sometimes it seems as if there's so much lip service in the church about justice and equity and race relations and racial reconciliation. But I wonder whether our lip service, our life service matches our lip service. I wonder if we are those who affirm the existence of God with our lips, but deny God's existence with our life. For we need more light in these days. The light of Jesus and his light can eclipse the life we are living with the life and light that wants to live in and through us. We need a theological eclipse 
not one in which light is covered, but one in which the light of Christ eclipses all the darkness we see happening in the world and even in our lives. A light for all the people, the light of the world that shines all around us by day and by night, a light that shines in the darkness and the darkness can't overcome it. The preeminent light of lights, Jesus Christ, the world's light. In the Lord of the Rings, the young hobbit Frodo Baggins is entrusted with the fate of the world because he has to destroy a ring of evil. He's fearful and he shares his fear with his wizard friend Gandalf. And he says, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. And Gandalf replies to him, so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. What will you do? with the light of Christ in you? That is the question. And I hope this is your answer. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine 